It's January 2015, and I'm a freshman working as the interim news editor of our college paper. An Elon University student has just taken his own life. Months later, another student would die of suicide after jumping off a school balcony. Fast forward to October 2017, a third student passed away unexpectedly, with suicide being the suspected cause. And most recently, a fourth committed suicide last month. Now, this cluster of recent deaths prompted me to ask many questions of President Leo Lambert and the university as a whole. How's Elon addressing growing concerns about student health and safety? What's being done to ensure counseling services has the resources it needs? Students say their needs are not being met at Elon. Should parents worry about the safety of their children? What reassurances can the university offer to people who are concerned about the volume of recent suicides? And finally, Five students have died in less than three years, four of which appear to have resulted from suicide. Is this the new normal? Now, after several weeks and multiple rejected requests for comments, the university finally responded this past Friday. Lambert and incoming president, Connie Book, announced Elon would hire three new counselors and, I quote, recommit to value each member of this special community, end quote. Still, The statement didn't answer several questions. Most notably, should parents worry about the safety of their children in light of these recent suicides? So today on the podcast, we delve deeper into the subject of mental health and suicide prevention, issues that often lurk in the shadows. If you're listening to this episode of State of the Media with Children, or don't wish to hear it for yourself, now is the chance to pause and come back next week when we'll have a new episode. But today on the show, I speak with three people. A mom whose daughter died of suicide 11 years ago, an official at a major university working to improve mental health conditions for students, and finally, a leading expert on mental health and suicide. We begin today's show with part one of three, A Mother's Story. Meet Tina Meyer founder of the Megan Meyer Foundation. In 2006, her 13-year-old daughter Megan took her own life. She hung herself in her room after being cyberbullied on MySpace by a cute boy named Josh Evans. The message Megan was believed to have last read was particularly cruel. You are a bad person and everybody hates you. Have a shitty rest of your life. The world would be a better place without you. I caught up with Tina on the phone to hear about her daughter and her subsequent fight to prevent others from following in Megan's footsteps. This interview, which was recorded early last week, has been lightly edited for timing purposes. We begin this segment with Tina explaining how her daughter got on MySpace. Megan asked if she could have you know, a MySpace account. And I told her, no, there were sexual predators out there. It wasn't safe. Um, You know, I think those things a lot of parents are concerned with. And, you know, she kept begging me saying, everybody has one, mom, please, what's the big deal? You can trust me, all of those things. So I put a lot of rules in place, um, but I let her have the MySpace account um, and I monitored it. Megan started adding friends from her old school, friends from her new school, and again, she was doing really well. 
About three weeks later, she got a friend request from a boy um, by the name of Josh Evans, and Megan begged me to add him. Um, I asked her who he was and where, if she knew him from somewhere, and she kept saying, you know, no, mom, please. And in Megan's words, it was mommy's hot, just please. And I let her add him. And I told her if anything negative or anything sexual, he was deleted immediately. And I know that a lot of people hearing um, these words will probably second guess me and think, lady, what is wrong with you? Why would you let your kid do that? Here's the thing. Um, back then with dial-up, I still knew that even telling Megan no, she was a 13, almost 14-year-old girl and curious. And I was afraid that Megan would go to a library, to a friend's house, create a fake account, and find Josh. And then I wouldn't have a clue. This way, I wanted to be open with her, letting her know that I was going to be monitoring it. I was going to see everything that was going on. But at least this way, if something came up or happened, I could be there. And what happens when she meets Josh Evans at first? So when her and Josh uh, first start talking, Josh immediately comments on her pictures, you know, tells her that she's beautiful, has a beautiful smile. Um, she thinks he's cute, too. And they just start talking. Now, I was the mom that would remind her and say, listen, you do not know this person. You know, I know that he says he knows this person and that person, but you really don't know this person. I made sure and would tell her, don't put the name of your school. You know, do not tell what mall you're going to. You don't give out anything. So I was consistently with her reminding her of a lot of those things of not giving out specifics um, because you don't know if it's a 10-year-old kid, an 80-year-old grandma, that anybody can be anybody behind a screen. Right. And uh, Megan, of course, rolled her eyes at me most of the time, typical teen. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, seriously, come on. I get it. I know. I know. And, you know, she thought I was like the most strict parent in the world. And it, it wasn't trying to be strict. It was just being a petrified parent wanting to protect your kid. And um, her and Josh continued to talk. And, you know, again, I would monitor it. And nothing negative was said. They just would talk about her day or talk about things that he likes. They talked about, you know, that she had a dog and, you know, if she was having a bad day. He would, you know, tell her, you know, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about those other people or whatever it may have been. And so, you know, again, it was very, very um, generic discussions that I monitored. Um, it had been about five weeks and, Megan was, um, and during this period of time, you know, now going to school football games and spending the night with, you know, some girls and going to the malls and the movies, just being that goofy, fun, 13, almost 14-year-old girl. And her and Josh had been talking for about five weeks, um, but now it's October 15th, 2006. Um, she had two volleyball games that morning. It was a Sunday. And then that evening, um, she asked to sign on to MySpace because she um, wanted to fill out her birthday invitation. She was going to be taking, handing them out over that next day. So I signed her on, and she got a message out of the blue from Josh that said he didn't want to be friends with her anymore. He heard she was not a very nice person. And Megan even looked at me and said, Mom, look at this. Just out of nowhere. And I, yeah, out of nowhere. 
And I said, Megan, you know, honey, just ask him what he's talking about. People have bad days. You know, just say, what are you talking about? So she did um, ask him that question, but there was no response. She was now talking to some other friends and she asked him again, you know, what are you talking about? Where'd you get this from? And still no response. I told her it was late. She needed to sign off. So she signed off, went to bed. Next morning, wakes up in a great mood. All of her invitations together, I drop her off at school. I pick her up that afternoon. She comes running out of school. She's in a great mood, laughing, giggling. You know, everybody's coming to her birthday party. It's going to be great. And we get home. Um, but the moment we get home, she wanted to see, did he respond? What did he say? Because back then it was dial-up. You couldn't find out any other way. And um, I signed her on and I said, but you've got a few minutes. I've got to take your sister to the orthodontist. Um, her sister was 10 and a half and in fifth grade. So Megan said, okay. So she got a message from Josh that came in late the night before that responded and said, you heard me. No one likes you. No one wants to be friends with you. And Megan said, why are you saying this? You know, I am nice unless somebody is mean to me. Who's saying this? And it went back and forth for a few minutes. And I yelled in and I said, Megan, your sister just got off the bus. I've got to go. You need to sign off. And she said, Mom, I will just please let me finish this last message. Typically, I never did that, but it was pouring down rain um, and I was in this rush and I left. Um, I called her to check on her to make sure she signed off. And I said, Meg, you know, she was crying. I said, Meg, what is going on? And she said, Mom, they're being horrible. I said, who? And she said on MySpace, I said, Megan, I told you to sign off. Get off the MySpace. I will be home. I called her again about 45 minutes later. Um, we were getting ready to leave. And at this point, she was sobbing. Um, I couldn't even understand her. And she said, you have to come home and see it for yourself. I came home. I, I was tired. My other daughter's crying because her braces hurt. Megan's at home hysterical. And I had told Megan to sign off the computer. Um, so I was frustrated. And I walked in and I told her to get up. And she was still crying at the computer and I, Megan looked at, or I looked at what was going on and there were messages from Josh to Megan, Megan to Josh, and now Josh got two other girls involved. And the things that went back and forth were, you know, Megan Myers a fat ass, Megan Myers a whore, and those were about the nicest things um, that were going out about her because back then they used your name. They didn't care. Um they didn't realize that you could get caught easily when you're using people's names. So I now am trying to figure out what's going on. And I see now messages that Megan sent back to them saying, you know, I'm not this, you're that. And why are you saying this? And, you know, I tried Fighting telling back. Megan. Yeah, absolutely. And I said, come on, Meg, we've talked about this, the war of words, you know, I, I said, if you would have listened to me, if you would have signed off when I told you to, we could have dealt with this differently. I said, Meg, you're not any of these things that they're calling you. And she looked at me and said, Mom, who's going to believe me? They're going to everybody at my old school, everybody at my new school. No one's going to believe me. And she said, you're supposed to be my mom. You're supposed to be on my side. And she took off running upstairs to her room. I heard her dad wake up. He would work really early in the mornings. And... um he woke up and was 
you know, asked, he'd seen Megan when she ran upstairs and he came into the kitchen and was like, what is going on? What, what is happening? And I was starting to explain to him, you know, what had happened. And it probably 20 minutes went by and all of a sudden I just had a horrible feeling that ran through my entire body. I ran upstairs into Megan's room, opened the door, and I found her hanging in her closet. Um, I screamed to her dad. Um, He ran upstairs and was trying to get her down. I found the phone um, and called 911. Um, The paramedics arrived and because Megan wasn't breathing this whole time. Um, But they got her heart started and got her to start breathing again with assistance. But Megan was transported to Children's Hospital, and 24 hours later, Megan passed away. She was without oxygen for too long that, um, unfortunately, the rest of her organs started shutting down. Um, We left the hospital that night. Megan's dad went back to the house to see, was there a note? What happened? How, How did this happen? And there was no note. Um, But he did see on AOL Instant Messenger, which I did not see, um, were the last two messages from Josh that said, the world would be a better place without you and have a shitty rest of your life. Um, The Josh Evans account now the next day, um, when I went to try to log on to see why would he do that, what is going on, was deleted. Um, It was almost all the way gone. And for probably the next three to four to five weeks, um, I searched and searched and searched trying to find his picture, looking at people who had he had been friends with that Megan knew, looking for anything, you name it, trying to search and find him. But there was nothing. And I didn't have a clue of what happened Um, on Thanksgiving weekend, um, we received a call, which was Megan died on October 17th. This was Thanksgiving weekend, so about five weeks um, later, we got a message or a call from a neighbor down the street that um, essentially begged us to come to a meeting about Megan's death. Um, We weren't too thrilled about it, didn't know what they wanted, um, but went to the the meeting um, it was at a counselor's office in the area, and I walked in, and Megan's dad walked in, and there were probably eight to ten people in a circle. Um, and I walked in and said, "So tell me that the Josh Evans account's fake. Is that what you're here to tell me?" And the one woman shook her head and said, "Yes, that um, she her daughter was the same age as Megan, um, went to the same school, and." that um, she was friends, had been friends with Lori and Kurt Drew. Um, and Lori talked to the daughter and her, Lori Drew and her daughter, Sarah, would take um, this lady's daughter to religion class and soccer practice and all of that. And as all that was going on, they would talk about this fake Josh Evans account and what they were doing to Megan and how they thought it was funny. So it was um, a, a former friend of, of Megan's mother mm-hmm. and the former friend of Megan who had set up this phony Josh Evans account sort of to, to make Megan feel bad for not being a, a good friend, supposedly. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And there was another 18 year old girl, Ashley Grills, who was really kind of a family friend. Um, she struggled quite a bit. So she hung out there and did some part time work for Lori Drew, the neighbor. Um, so it was those three, you know, my neighbor, um, her daughter, Megan, who had been friends or Sarah, Megan had been friends with her since the fourth grade and Ashley. And in this eighth grade, Megan was going to a different school. Um, and they had heard that Megan was talking bad about Sarah. So they thought they would gain Megan's confidence, add, have her add this boy, Josh, and see what she was saying about her daughter, Sarah. Um, and when there was nothing that was brought up or discussed, it really turned into a sick game that it was just kind of funny to make her think that this boy likes her. Um, really to try to get her back for what they felt that Megan was not a very good friend to her. So all, all of this um, coming from, from, from what you're calling a, a sick game, if I, I, I don't want to get into a hypothetical, but if, if Megan were here today, what would, what would she be saying if, if, she, if she knew that this all stemmed from that? Um, Megan would have been pissed. And I assume you were very much so at the time and still are probably. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's not really to say the word pissed or mad or angry. Those words don't even suffice to what I felt, um, you know, and even to this day still, um, you know, feel. If Megan would have known she was being played um, and made to look like a fool, that child of mine would have stomped, stormed down the street and confronted them. That, that was just, she would have been hurt, but she definitely would have confronted them and been angry. Um, but she never knew. So, so as, a, as a, a, a mother, when you, when you find this out, how do you try and, and move forward? And maybe this transitions to the Megan Meyer Foundation, but what do you do with this information and, and what possible resolutions do you try and make? For me, um, I could not keep quiet about what happened. And I wanted, really back then, I wanted everybody in the world to know who Lori and Kurt Drew were, the dad. I wanted them, if they walked into a store, I wanted people to know who these people were. The people who set up this them. MySpace account. Yes, absolutely. Um, I wanted them held accountable. I wanted laws to be changed. I wanted, I wanted them to go to jail, of course. Um, but there were no laws in the state of Missouri. So um, we did get the laws changed in 2008. Um, but then um, it was really one of those things that you know, I had to kind of really decide that I could stay mad and angry and hate them every second of my life, but that it was destroying me. And so I wanted, I knew that I wanted to help kids. I didn't know exactly how or how to do it, um, but it happened. You know, besides my daughter and my small little family that I've got, the foundation's been my saving grace because, um, you know, I can't change what happened in the past because I always say if I could, I would, um, but I can't. And so that's where using Megan's story to really 
help teens understand they're not alone, helping them know that they have a voice, that what's happening to them is not okay, or if they're the ones that are starting it or part of it, that they can make a change, that, yes, sometimes we do things we wished we wouldn't have or don't realize the impact of our words or actions, but we can always change from that. It's been a little bit more than 11 years since since Megan's suicide. What's what's not being done 11 years later? Where What would you still like to, to see in terms of cyberbullying, education, uh, awareness? What's not being talked about or done? Well, I think what is happening is that we are, schools are piecemealing um, programs and um, curriculum or individual things together. Um, I think that schools need to have really a a whole entire overall school plan. Um, you know, each and every staff member within a school, whether they are the custodians, whether they are the lunchroom attendants, attendants, guidance, you name it, they all need to be trained on the signs um, of suicide. It does not mean that they have to be therapists in any way. It just means that they see or know the signs, they know how to be able to report it. They know how to get that child help. Um, I think that we need to make sure that that there is an overall system, systematic plan for a school when addressing situations such as bullying and cyberbullying. The schools need support. They truly do. Um, they cannot do it on their own with all of the funding that they have in place. Um, and so I think that's a, a big lack. We need more uh, licensed therapists and social workers within schools that are trained in trauma um, because a lot of these kids are struggling and have a lot of trauma issues. Well, I, I remember hearing this story first when I was I was 10 years old, and it's uh, such a pleasure to to be hearing from you and, and, and talking with you, and I'm really grateful for you taking the time and wish you all the best. Well, thank you. I do too, and I'm grateful that you're reporting on these topics because, again, um, I think each person can learn a little bit here and there, and, you know, so again, I appreciate what you're doing too. Suicide is a very complex topic. Hearing personal stories is important, but it's also important to realize how schools play a powerful role in shaping the campus climate. I wanted to learn more about efforts universities could take to address growing demands on counseling services departments. So I decided to make a call. Hello, this is Laura. Meet Laura Lewis, Assistant Director of the Suicide Prevention Program at Ohio State University. My name is Laura Lewis, and um, I am a licensed professional clinical counselor and supervisor um, here in the state of Ohio, and um, kind of wear two hats. I am currently the Assistant Director of the Suicide Prevention Program at The Ohio State University, um, and I also function in a clinical role in private practice as well. Since 2000, Ohio State has had nearly 60 cases of student suicides. Lewis has spent the past several years working to address growing demands on counseling services. In our conversation, we spoke at length about how colleges could reach students who are actively seeking help, as well as those who are suffering in silence. 
As far as uh, sort of a tangible university infrastructure, um, I'm, I'm hearing from, from students who are saying that there's, uh, they're not able to get the help that they need from counseling services or a counseling services department will try and cap a number of appointments for students simply because they're, they're overworked and they, they don't have all the sessions in the world and a small staff. What, what would be a good starting point in infrastructure to put in place for, for a university? Yeah, Brian, you're asking a question that pretty much every campus in America is asking right now. I, I, and I, I feel that pain. I think you're not alone in that. Um, from a trend perspective, across the board, we're seeing increased need for services in counseling and mental health response centers on college campuses. And, and really, you know, even just sort of looking at population size and difference, um, it doesn't seem to matter the size of your school. The need seems to, to be pretty perpetual at, at most campuses. And a lot of counseling services offices are really struggling to figure out how to meet those needs. And, and like you mentioned, you know, capping sessions, trying to do really good triage on the front end to really understand what might necessitate individual clinical services versus um, some other type of support services is something that a lot of folks are starting to put into place. Um, but it's, it's not easy right now to know how to best reach, reach every student. And part of that we're attributing to, we think, um, a positive thing, which is uh, a, a hopefully a beginning to a reduction in stigma. Um, that students are starting to come forward a little bit more, feeling more confident that help is out there and, and wanting to seek that help and pushing through some of the, that stigma that still prevails, but um, we may be getting a little bit better at. And so that's increasing the need for services. Uh, I, I guess I'm curious what your, your pitch would be to, to getting someone to go through that step when they, they feel they have no resource to turn to or they feel they have no friend or they feel they don't have people to listen to them. How do you get someone who has that mindset uh, into a good place? Yeah, I, I think um, we, we deal with that as well. And um, it's tough. Uh, there are a lot of variables that go into effectiveness of counseling and effectiveness of treatment. And often there are, you know, two sides to the coin there. Um, I think to address the first point there about counseling, I would say, and, and as a clinician, I can certainly speak to this pretty well. It, it often takes a little bit of time in working with a counselor to feel like you've got a good established relationship going and that progress is being made. Um, if you just sort of think about it theoretically, it's two strangers meeting and one of them is sharing their life and their distress and the other is not. And so that can feel weird and strange and sometimes a little bit awkward and, and quite frankly, sometimes personalities, you know, just don't mesh well. Um, and so usually what we, we tell students and, and what we tell clients is, you know, give it a couple of sessions and make sure that you're, you're willing to put yourself out there to maximize what you're wanting to get back. And if after a couple of sessions, it just isn't feeling like a good fit, um, then it's not time to toss counseling aside. It's time to ask for a different counselor and to see if there might be a better connection with a different personality or someone who different, has a, maybe a different theoretical orientation to counseling or maybe just has different experience um, in another way. Because we know that happens all the time. The, the first fit isn't always the best fit. And so I think that's important to acknowledge that we know treatment works, but the relationship 
in that treatment process is crucial to the success of that treatment. So we always kind of look at the relationship and, and make sure that that's the way it, it, it can best be for that person. And if it's not, we try to reestablish another better working relationship. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk. I certainly do appreciate you helping me out and coming on the show. No problem. You're very welcome. And I appreciate being asked. We now entered the third and final act of our show this week. So far, you've heard from the mother of a daughter who committed suicide. We've also heard from a suicide prevention program leader at Ohio State University. But what are the numbers behind suicide? How can mental health concerns best be addressed? And most importantly, what messages of optimism are out there? To help answer these questions, I spoke with Dr. Sanjay Nath, director of the Doctor of Psychology program at Widener University a small private college in Pennsylvania. Now, Nath has researched suicide for several years and has a PhD in clinical psychology, making him a perfect resource to talk to. You've been studying this for, for several years, just the issue of suicide. Has, it gotten, has the problem gotten better? Has it gotten worse over time? Where are we in, in terms of just how it's progressed? And the second thing I, I really want to know from your perspective is, why are students committing suicide? What are what are some of the, the common warning signs that you're seeing in, in your area of yep. research? Well, both of those are great questions. And um, the sort of uh, the first question about where are we at is a great question. And a lot of where we're at depends on what vantage point you're kind of looking at. I mean, I think because um, I, I could focus a little bit on the college student group, um, and say a few things. Sure. One thing that is important or interesting to note is that if you are 18 to 24 and you're at college, your risk of committing suicide, either having an attempt or actually going through with the suicide is halved uh, compared to age controlled individuals who don't go to college. And so there is something protective about being at college for that age, for those years from 18 to 24. Um, the research can't exactly identify what that is. Uh, it may be that uh, students at college are um, have more contact with other people. They're more a part of a community. Uh, they're part of, uh, they, they have some goals, they have some aspirations. All of that kind of may play in to uh, keeping the rate lower than the general population. But I... I also know that many uh, universities, many colleges struggle with the issue of suicide. Uh, they struggle with the number of attempts. They struggle with how to, how to have a prevention strategy. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for 18 to 24 year olds. It's, it's second after accidents and in the accident group, motor vehicle accidents is first. So um, in this young, relatively healthy group, um, it is a, a fairly substantial problem, something that we could think about. It starts, obviously, I think before even college, there's a lot of research on high school students. And um, about 20% of high school students say that they have seriously considered suicide. And as many as 50% of high school students say that they've had the thought or had a fleeting thought of less serious consideration 
of is, hurting themselves. Is that recent data, or is that, or is that something that that's older? That is relatively recent data. And yeah. is that sort of increasing uh, over time, or has has that sort of always been a, a similar figure in the past decade? I say? think. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of just seriously thinking about it, it's harder to ascertain um, the the rate of people. So you you have a large group of people who might have had a thought about it or think about it. You might have a smaller group that seriously considers it. And then you have um, another group that has made an attempt and an even smaller group that has completed suicide. Because um, for almost every hundred attempts, only one person actually ends up killing themselves. Um, and the attempts are about 1% to 2% uh, in the college-aged group. So it's one in 100 people are going to actually make an attempt. So those are much lower numbers than the 20% that think about it or have thought about it. So in other words, just um, more, so many people... Considering it. So I was just going to say, so in other words, just so many, a certain amount of people think about committing suicide when they're adolescents or have suicidal thoughts. And that's, that's about one in five people or 20%. And then you break that down yeah. further and say, how many people who are college age, 18 to 24 in that bracket, uh, try, try and, and commit suicide. And that's probably around one or two percent you're saying and then you break that down even yes. further and one or two percent of the one or two percent are successful in their attempts that's exactly right there's also been a fair amount of research about how after one suicide there's actually an increased probability for another and um there's something called the contagion effect that's been studied a little bit when a suicide gets a lot of attention and publicity the odds of someone else resonating with that and who's already been thinking about suicide and uh, having a suicide. So there's been, especially at very large universities, data around there being clusters or, you know, there'll be more than you might predict in a period of years. And then there will be some years with none. And um, some, some folks have hypothesized that it might be related to people see how much attention and kind of energy is focused on this person who's done this and, and remembering them and um, sometimes sort of follow through on something they've been percolating on. It's one reason actually some researchers recommend that universities not make a huge deal out of memorials or out of events post-suicide um, because of this attention piece that can build and sort of start to play in some people's minds about, wow, I, I really would, that, that sort of pushes them towards that trajectory. Going off of the contagion effect, because that's something very important that you mentioned, and I want to follow up on that. Uh, there, there's some news organizations that just have a policy of refusing to write articles about uh, people who commit suicide. And there's certain guidelines and recommendations for not reporting the methods of how people executed it, but uh, just reporting yeah. that it happened. Am, am I wrong in a podcast here to be talking about student suicide? Is there a danger that I'm kind of creating more of a problem by talking about the matter with you? Yeah, I would say no. I mean, there's. Um, I, I think part of what you're referring to there is Sometimes if you can very explicitly talk about how someone did something or kind of get into the details of it, 
I think that that can have a certain effect. I think sometimes journalistic approaches to this can be a little bit sensational or like sort of uh, attempting to focus on parts of it without looking at some of the bigger kinds of factors at play. I mean, the only thing I would add that I think um, is so important and that I alluded to before is we have to remember that every person who um, hurts themselves, commits suicide, is a human being with a story and um, that we can connect to and relate to. And I think if we can be less scared of this topic and more um, willing to be with others who are struggling with mental health issues, I think we can um, approach this in a way that helps us empower those around us that are that struggle and all of us can be better off for that for those efforts thank you so much for tuning into this edition of state of the media if you or someone you know has had suicidal thoughts you can call the national suicide prevention line at 1-800-273-8255 again that's 1-800-273-8255 professionals are available 24 7 to provide confidential support We'll be back in your feed next Monday with a new episode. Until next time, I'm Brian Anderson signing off on State of the Media. See you soon.